people, uh, I've got a very special guest here with me today. He has worked on some major Hollywood blockbusters from, if I, if I start uh, expanding his portfolio, it's going to take us a whole lot of time, but I'm just going to say he's worked on Interstellar, Dunkirk, and uh, quite a lot of massive movies, including Star Wars, uh, The Last Jedi, Chronicle, Rampage, and so much more. Uh, I, people, I'm pleased to welcome Walter Walpato on board. Walter, thank you thank, for joining. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Walter, so uh, your job, you know, what you've done over the years in Hollywood has been color grading. And your job as a DI colorist, I mean, uh, you are mostly responsible for, you know, how the, the final picture looks on screen. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about your job? What's the, what's the job of a DI colorist? Uh, well, the basic idea is since movie started to use film, um, they soon realized that you have different kind of um, shooting condition. Like imagine if you're doing a, a car chase, you shoot through several days and it doesn't look pretty if you just cut together the images and you try to put it up. So a colorist has two main responsibility. One is to be sure that we create a world uh, with the color, with the photography combined with the uh, with the set design or the costume design, and we create a world that is compelling for the story we want to tell. And, and then every scene has to be coherent inside that world and within each other. So talking about the you know, car chase, my job is to be sure that the car chase look amazing, but also that it looks like it's a continuous movement from one shot to another. You don't feel that one shot was shot yesterday, one was shot you know, three days ago. Exactly. So it's a it's it's a bit of um, a bit of technical expertise and a bit of artistic eye and taste on it. Cool. So when it comes to deciding the look of a film, Walter, uh, who are the key collaborators? Like who who decides the the look from the get go? Is it just you or uh, you know the director, the cinematographer? Who contribute to this look? So for the majority of the movie I do, you know, the, the Hollywood, Blockbuster, Netflix, whatever, um, the colorist doesn't really have the ownership of the image. The director of photography has it. So what we usually do um, in pre-production before, you know, shooting any real material, we do two or three camera tests. And do the camera tests are for choosing the lens, choosing the camera, looking at costume. But also we start to look at what we want to do with the look. So uh, let's talk, for example, about Hustler. We know the Hustler was done mostly in low light. It was a nightclub scene. There are yeah. a lot of colorful um, uh, costumes. And the director said, you know, I want to have the feeling of a Fuji stock, something from late 90s. So we want to go back a little bit in time. So I need to marry um, a color science from the film industry that we know because mm -hmm. we have been around for years with the yep. new digital camera and together through two or three um, tests, we develop what it's the master look of the whole movie. So mm -hmm. when, um, when they go to the set, they, they daily have the same look at table. They, 
uh, on the set, you have the Sumo Lookup table, the VFX. So everybody start to look coherently at what is the projection for the final image. And I really like to work in that way. So when it's possible, creating a look ahead of time where everybody basically, it's like a gigantic foundation where the whole stack start to build. Genetically speaking, director of photography here in Hollywood have the first and the last say on the image. Gotcha. So uh, if you take, you know, movies like Interstellar and Dunkirk as an example, which happen to be some of the, uh, you know, highlights in your career along with movies like Star Wars, uh, these are big budget films. Like, uh, you know, people spend lots and lots of money into getting yep. that pristine picture quality. How does that help your job? Well, uh, I always joke that it took me something like 10 years, 10,000 hour to get good at what I'm doing. And then I just started to get better photography. Um, because at the end of the day, when you get, you know, Interstellar or Dunkirk, they're both shot by Hoyt Van Oytman, those images are amazing. I mean, there is really nothing I have to do to make them better. It's just preserving the consistency, preserving the original intent. And in case specifically of Dunkirk, it's matching what was the original uh, contact print from the negative. So uh, Christopher Nolan, for Christopher Nolan, the print is still king. So we still do a full photochemical process. And the, the digital part was how we can match all the characteristic of the actual film in a side-by-side -side with the 65 millimeter print and try to you know, replicate it in digital. Um, Star Wars, for example, is similar. You have this kind of um, the retro photography, Steve Yedlin, they did a lot of prep work, you know, exactly on the set, which lighting to put, which rate you to have. And when the material come to me is, is, is stellar. I mean, my job is more like consistency throughout all the master deliverable you have to do. If you think about uh, Star Wars, just to stay in the same name, you have a 2D theatrical, a 3D theatrical, a 2D mm -hmm. Dolby, a 3D Dolby, a 2D IMAX, a 3D IMAX, a 35 and a 65 print, and then all the domestic distribution. So you kind of have to artistically and technically keep the consistency of the original intent throughout all these medium. So for me, we started the project knowing, just reading one of the questions, we actually know where we want to go with the image from the beginning. Uh, sometimes you have movie where I don't have the choice. I mean, I get the movie after the movie has been shot. Uh, they may or may not have something in mind, like for um, uh, Green Book, the, the dailies were done with a normal Alexa lookup table, nothing fancy, just see the photography as is. Uh, sure. And then we work to generate the look to say, okay, what, which is the characteristic that you want to have in the movie? You want to have a little bit more filming. Can we add a certain amount of grain? Can we add elation? Can we add uh, which kind of contrast ratio you want in the final image? So we build in the first day kind of a, the language we want to have for the whole movie together, me and Sean, the DP. And then we pass it through the whole movie. I mean, it's still... Even when you cannot start at the beginning, I still like the process of give me your visual idea and let's put the photography within this idea with a minimum amount of touch-up 
and then we just deal with the differences. Got you. So how early on did you come onto these movies? You know, the big budget ones, Star Wars, Dunkirk, Interstellar. How early uh, on were you doing them? So Dunkirk and Interstellar, I was at the back end, but it doesn't matter because being film, I was working still at Photocam at the time. We had the lab. We know exactly how film is characterized. And because our mandate was, it has to look as possible like the original film, we knew what to do. I didn't even, in a way, I didn't even need to see the movie. It was very technical what we were doing. For Star Wars, I worked previously with Steve Yedlin on um, San Andreas. Uh, and then before the starting of uh, Star Wars, we were looking at the characteristic of his color signs that he want to keep and which is the challenges that we have to face when we go in production. Um, mm -hmm. So even if I didn't see specific frame until basically uh, trailer number one, teaser number one, I know what, what I was facing. I mean, I, I know how his color signs react to an image and he's a great photographer. I mean, it, it, the image come from him, it's pretty much done. <laughs> That's the thing, like I say, if people think the colorist on a big budget movie does a lot of things. We, we don't. I mean, the photography is really, really good. And in the movie, it's much more challenging because you have less light budget. Uh, the location, sometimes it is what it is. You can't paint the wall. Sure. And yeah. so it's more challenging actually in an indie movie or in a small project than a big budget. The big budget, the, the order is just don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Totally get that. So for people who don't, who don't know, Walter has also worked on uh, Green Book, which won the Academy Award in 2019 for well, the Best Picture Academy Award, which is quite a lot. And uh, Walter was the colorist on that project as well. So uh, Walter, when it comes to Green Book, would you characterize that as a high-budget high movie or indie or somewhere in between? That was actually something more on the indie side. I mean, an indie side for Hollywood, it's a big budget for other places. Let, let's face it. Um, but it definitely wasn't, you know, a blockbuster. And they plan it with the minimal amount of visual effect possible. So all the car scene, it's really two or three cameras inside the car driving alongside the road. There is no green screen. I think there was one night scene that was done on a stage, but it was just, um, uh, it's because it's a it was a pickup and they just did it with, you know, a few lights passing by. So it was completely night. Um, so the basic idea is the movie, yes, you have the big star, you have to pay the big star, but the budget for the actual shooting and visual effect was kind of a, a little, a, a high end of the indie market, if you want to, if you say. And the thing is that if you have a good story and you can dress it up just about right, you have a movie. I mean, I saw big budget movie that fail because yeah they're spectacular but the story ain't there and that's what what will at the end doomed you yeah, uh, yeah let me read this question of the production yes the the basic idea is that the production design and costume start at the beginning to build the look of the movie like it's very difficult in color later on if the production designer and the costume and, you know, the wigs and whatever lighting you're putting, they all reflect a certain idea. Changing it later in post can be really, really challenges. 
somebody is asking if you can ask a question. Yeah. Yes, yeah. we will try to answer. You can. <laughs> you can. Please do post your uh, questions as well. Usually we have the Q&A session uh, at the very end, but please do ask your questions and uh, time permitting, we will definitely get bothered to answer them. Uh, so when it comes to, uh, you know, now that was Green Book and like every single project I'm assuming has a quite different approach mm -hmm. when you are grading. Uh, I just wanna switch back to the blockbusters because again, uh, you're kind of talking about the art of grading blockbusters. You're currently working on a Netflix film as well, The Old Guard, uh, yep. Starling, 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 is there, and it's due to be released later this month. I, didn't, I think uh, the uh, it's a, I don't know in your region, in my region will be the 10th of July, so about a month from now. Okay, so uh, when it comes to grading something like that for you know, Netflix, which is uh, not necessarily cinema, but streaming, like how are the demands? Like how is it different, if if at all? Okay, so for that production, the first thing I knew when when I knew there was gonna be uh, that was gonna work on the movie, I had nothing. I have no idea on the movie that was already shot. Um, I asked for uh, uh, the cut of the movie, the director cut or whatever cut they have of the movie, so I can watch it from beginning to end as an observer. Like, what's the story about? Where are the um, the emotional part it's mm -hmm. um it's a drama is it a fighting scene is uh, this moment is more intimate with the character and try to visualize which is the color the better represent that particular scene then in this case they told me hey by the way it's it's a comic book first thing i go i go to buy the comic book because i want to see also what was the original intent in the comic book and um so i got those things in mind then uh, uh, because of the pandemic, it was funny because we were working remote. So it's Netflix, has to be HDR, but we can't do HDR remote at the moment. So we started in 709. I was in LA. The director of photography is in London. Uh, producer and director are still in LA. So mm -hmm. we started the first couple of days, just go through few shots here and there in, uh, in every scene and kind of put ballpark like how do you want this scene how do you want that scene and i like to do hero shots it's like a scene on the market the main character is talking to that guy what's important for you once i have those stone you know milestone then i go through and i quickly do the scene put the scene together and say does it work and i try to go through the scene as fast as reasonably possible because nobody at mm -hmm. home really stop and look at the frame you look the story so the story has to work the playback has to work sure. and because that particular project has a, a theatrical distribution as well and an hdr as well i build mathematical model to go from 709 to hdr and 709 to theatrical okay uh, you know color science transformation and then every day at the end of the day i was reviewing the work i did both in hdr and theatrical and see if they still work Mm -hmm. When we were toward the end of the production, then they set up one room on a company here in, uh, in LA with a proper calibrated monitor. And we just stream the 4K there so they can do, we can do a full day, full HDR to do a proper trimming pass. And the same we did it with projection. Cool. So uh, currently, I mean, you have your own process and like uh, it's taken you quite a long way to get here. 
So we have a question from Rajiv, who's uh, kind of taking you back to your origins. What drew you to filmmaking and movies and how did you get your start and what has the journey been like? Yes, do you have three hours? <laughs> but you know, the, basically I started, uh, uh, I'm a farmer, I start on a farm. Um, but back in the 90s, I started to work as an engineer in a broadcast and it was a period of time where, uh, um, just to quickly reply to this question, yes, I do my color pass for all the distribution. I like to do it personally. Um, I started to work as an engineer in a period of time where computers start to be part of the post-production in TV. So uh, VFX, compositing, um, 3D, all started, fascinated me. And I, I tried to pursue a VFX career. Uh, in the 2000s, I was, early 2000s, I was working in Rome uh, and I joined Quantel at the time. Uh, I was doing uh, uh, engineering for them. And also in, Quant in, in Cinecita in Rome, they got a couple of machines. We were starting, you know, the digital intermediate. Nobody knew what to do. I mean, today you go on internet and there are millions of tutorials, YouTube, people that know what to do. At the time, four idiots said, we have no fucking idea what we were doing. <laughs> but we were trying anyway. Uh, and I started to like it. I say, ah, oh, I, I kind of like this. And I had the right technical knowledge, not the right artistic one. I mean, I love photography, but I wasn't a colorist by any means. And uh, I went here in the United States uh, in the end of 2003 to show... Um, other people how to use those machines technically uh, and they tell you know just stay with us uh, we know you're we understand you're not a colorist help us finish this project and then we will train you to become a colorist so my my trainer that really really unfortunately passed away today uh, just a couple of hours ago I knew he passed away then so Mascarella sorry. yeah then Mascarella it was a fantastic man and I he was a, a color timer from the, from the lab, you know, the old, old color timers. And he patiently sit next to me, basically being my eye, tell me what to do. So I had a very printer light, film oriented kind of um, uh, training. Do the minimum amount of thing to the image to bring it in, in the ballpark. Mm -hmm. and, and I still do that. I mean, I still, my color is very light unless we need to do something. I don't think we have to reinvent the photography that is there. So in a way, um, I was a technician first, an engineer first, then I became a colorist, but I still study color science, human vision, try to understand how we look at images and what's compelling both technically and artistically in the way we do images and try to put that, you know, in, in, in practice. I mean, I see colorists all around the world do a fantastic job. And uh, sometimes I say, I'm lucky because I work in Hollywood. Those people who are working here, I will have no job. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And uh, that's another good question. Is there a way to visually represent warmer countries without the typical yellow filter? This is something we see uh, a lot when uh, Hollywood has yes. seen Mexico. So ima imagine that we are representing the desert, the Namibian desert. Okay, we are in Namibia, Namibian desert. Try to imagine the Namibian desert with another color. Not, that is not hot, warm, yellow. Mm -hmm. Will you make it blue, like snow? 
Will you make it green? I mean, it just doesn't work. The, that's, that's the kind of idea. We have um, uh, a popular idea, a mind idea, if, if something is warm and hot, should be warm and hot, literally hot and yellow. Mm-hmm. If you're doing uh, something that is really happy, and you're making all blue and cold, the emotion conflict with the visual message you are giving. So unless it's intentional, I want to tell you, hey, watch out, because what you see is not really happy. You don't want to confuse um, your audience. It's the same with audio. If you have a very dramatic music on a scene that has nothing of dramatic, you're telling a cue to the audience, hey, there is something that's going to happen here. Pay attention. Yeah. So I understand that, you know, the sipped uh, Mexico with a, a tobacco tone, it can be a little bit too far. <laughs> um, but for example, for the old guard, there are three desert locations in three parts of the world. We still made them really warm with three different tones of warm. So visually, when you go in this location, you have a cue that you are there. And when you go in this location, you have a clue that you are there and not in the other one. Yeah. It's difficult. I mean, generically speaking, Hollywood tend to be too warm, for example, compared to European movie. Um, And also on the other side, I remember doing a documentary, restoring a documentary on Antarctica where the original transfer that was done probably 15 or 20 years ago was way too blue cyan. I understand you want to represent cold, but now the emperor penguin, there are all these beautiful color in the, in the, in the neck, in the collar, they were all cyan. Yeah. They were completely lost. So in that particular documentary, make the, the snow white, suddenly bring all the color back, and it still feels cold. You don't have to make it a slab of blue. A hint is enough. Sure. Yeah. So uh, my next question goes more towards uh, consistency again. So, you know, consistency throughout an entire film, is there such a thing? Or like we've seen certain scenes, you know, just flip the color grade on and on. So what's your take on this? How do you approach that consistency? Okay. So you create a word, you create a rule, you have to stick to the rule. So if you have... The Matrix, one of my favorite movies. And you are into The Matrix, you have a certain green-yellow feeling, you have to stick to it. If you're outside of The Matrix, it's more silvery-blue, you have to stick to it. However, let's say that you have a movie where you go inside the same house, you know, three times in the movie, one at the beginning, one at the middle, one at the end. And through the arch of the story of the movie itself, maybe six months pass by. Does the, st- does the shot at the end need to match the shot at the beginning? Mm-hmm. I see director of photography that want to match. Director of photography then don't care. For me, it doesn't matter. It has to match the time of the day and if you need it, the psychology of the moment. So once the scene is per se done and completed, the next time you go in the same location, unless it's mandatory that it's the same, it can go a little bit further or a little bit backward. Uh, if somebody goes at 
you know, after 90 minutes and feel that the scene doesn't match what you did at minute three, it means you mm -hmm. lost the story completely. You lost the audience, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, if you watch again Dunkirk and instead of looking at the action, you pay attention, for example, at the clouds, they're not right. They're always in the blood all over the place because there is no other way. Unless you make a gigantic VFX, the clouds are always whatever in, in the place. As long as the story works, those little inconsistencies don't bother. And like I said, to me, you know, if you go in your room and it's summer and then you go back in your room and it's winter, the light is different. I don't have to match it exactly. The scene has to be coherent. The scene with the world you created has to be coherent. And you need a bit of consistency between all the three acts of your movie. It doesn't have to match perfectly. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, we see a lot of big movies from Hollywood that has inconsistency, contrast, and color bands in a scene. What's your thought about that? Fire the colorist. <laughs> now, remember, it's not my movie. I have director, DP, sometimes the producer tell me what to do, and sometimes just that's what they want. I say, don't touch it. But don't touch it. Okay, fine, do we don't touch it. So we can recommend, we can show, we can try to go in a direction that feels more um, uh, coherent, but at the end of the day, like I say, it's not, it's not my, my decision. It's, it's not a budget issue. It's, I saw big budget, they're screwed up, and small budget, they are much more tied up. It's just how much time you have, Time is a factor. Yeah. When um, in, a, in a normal drama like um, Green Book that doesn't have many visual effects, you should be able to do a decent work in two weeks. And that's usually the budget they have. They may have three. Um, usually two, two weeks is about the budget they have. So one, for me, if I have two weeks, one week it means a whole pass on the movie has to be done where you can see it's not refined, but you can see the movie from beginning to end and it works. And then you spend yeah. the other half of the time to do all those little differences as much as you can. If you have unlimited time, you can, you can make everything perfect. The Revenant, they have unlimited budget, unlimited, well, not unlimited time, but a lot of time. And a lot of artists work on the movie, they can make it really perfect. If it's about, you know... VFX. So sometimes, like, you know, when you get the picture, I'm assuming you, the VFX is not necessarily complete. How do you ah. that? So, Rampage. I'm doing Rampage, first pass of color. The last reel is the big battle between all the monsters and all the rubble and etc. It was about 450 shots, the last reel. I start my color with just three. And those three shots were actually close-up of hands. So, I have nothing to work with. <laughs> I said, please start to send some temp shots and they send this stuff that was completely unusable. So with big, big VFX budget can be really challenging because you have only few shots um, sparse through the reel and you kind of a, a eyeball a benchmark and then you get you know, the in-between and you readjust the benchmark. It's more about making the visual effect works mm -hmm. than not you know, created something from scratch. It, it, visual effects usually don't withstand a lot of push and pull. Gotcha, all right. Um, now, back to when the same shot of angle 
but different cuts look different. There can be a couple of things. You think that it's the same cut or shot, but it can be a completely different take. So they don't necessarily match. Um, there could be a visual effect that has screwed up something for whatever reason. Uh, or like I say, certain colorists don't quite work as refined as I would like. But you know, it, it, there are other considerations. If you have a director of photography in the set, not in the set, sorry, with you coloring, they get bored. Let's face it. Seeing as a colorist color is not something that you can enjoy. So they start to ask you to do one more thing here, one more thing there. You lose track of what you're doing. So for me, having the ability to do one quick pass to put the whole scene in the ballpark, it's much more proficient in terms of time because you have the, uh, the flow of the image and you don't have time to fixate on the little thing on the corner. You start to look at, at the whole scene as a scene. If you stay too long on a shot, then you start to see all the little things that bother and it's difficult to keep consistency. So I, I hope I, I answer. There was also uh, a question uh, previously regarding, uh, hold on, yeah, about color. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about an overall consistency. That's, like I say, if I work by myself, I try to get consistency first, then refinement. The problem is if you get interrupted over and over by whoever's in the room to ask you about refinement, you don't get consistency. And then there is also the approach. If you start to attack real one, shot one, and then shot two, and then shot three, and then shot four, you spend way too much time at the beginning of the movie for the first group of shots, and then you run out of time for real six, seven, and eight. Well, in my methodology, I tried, like I say, to split in two the time and try to do consistency first ballpark and then refinement what about uh using color space transforms in rcm do you do that or um i tend to work with color space transforms um but because most of the production here they have a very specific look or look up table or you know they, they tend to have a predefined workflow so we stick to the workflow where there is a common color space. Usually it's the color space of the hero camera. It can be uh, a red, it can be so IPP2 or Alexa Log C or Sony uh, S-Log3Cine. Those are very common or log film log if it's film. Mm -hmm. And then every other camera will be color transform in that space. Sure. And I'm very used to, uh, to work in logarithmic, so for me, one logarithmic color space is very similar to the other. There are very little differences. And uh, it, it really suits my methodology of logarithmic, uh, think about the scene color and think about a print emulation device, look, whatever that you put at the other end. Doesn't, doesn't physically have to match print, but it's a common look at table, a common look on the whole project. Gotcha. So, uh, guys, we'll have a segment for the questions uh, a little bit towards the end. So, I just want to bring Walter's attention back towards uh, the indie scene. So, uh, like, you know, coloring, color grading, yep. it's largely dependent on the tech available. So, but when it comes to independent filmmaking, uh, there are limited resources. 
how can independent filmmakers navigate this pathway to get, you know, better picture quality in order to supplement the color grading process? Yeah. So, unfortunately, if you have no money, it's difficult. But the, the best thing that I can tell you is light your set. Uh, if you can, build with your colorist a lookup table or a look that can be brought on the set that is the basic idea of what you're trying to achieve uh, you know, artistically. Mm. And do the light on the set right. If you do the light on the set right, the color part is a breeze. If you try to fix it later, you already don't have the budget. You certainly don't have the time to do it. That's not and fixing it in post. No, the, you know, like I say, if you are uh, Lubetsky and he knows exactly what he wants and he does a lot of post-production refinement, he has the money, he has the budget, he has the talent. If you're an indie, you probably have a week or two at most. And the, the worst is the photography, the more the colorist time will be spent to just make the photography work. So really take and pay attention of the lighting of your set. That's the the most important thing at the point where if the lighting is right, you can almost skip the color correction. You still have a product, but if mm -hmm. the lighting is bad, then it's really difficult to pull it back from the, from the abyss. You spoke about color correction. Could you just uh, expand a little bit more on that? Uh, say again, you broke up for a second. Oh, could, could you uh, expand a little bit more about color correction? In the way I do it, on the way, generically speaking? Uh, both, both. Like how it's generally done and then if you have a okay. different taking. Yeah. Well, the, the, way, the way I do it, um, because I try to make um, a global look for the whole project, the majority of the color decision and the color mapping from the camera to the, to the display is done in one take, is your main look. Mm -hmm. Then I go down and I try to make the look for the scene, you know, with the hero shot, and then match and make consistency through the scene. And then if I have time, I go in the single shot and make whatever refinement it is. And it's like, um, I like to work in layer. Big look for the movie, big look for the scene, matching the shots, and then down to refining the shots. I find it very efficient, and especially for TV where you don't have much time. For TV, oh my God, you have 16 hours to do an episode, you may have 900 cuts, chop, 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 because there is no time. Um, even if you have a movie like, uh, you know, Matrix Light, where you have two big words and you have to be consistent, it's the same idea. You have two big words for the act of the movie or for the scene of the movie, then within the Matrix world, there will be those five scenes. And then within the scene, there will be those 20 shots. And the 20 shots will be the refinement. The idea is that going in this way, you only deal with smaller and smaller differences when you color. So you're very efficient. If you think about the other way to work, start from color one, make all your curve or the adjustment and making the shot perfect, then you do to color two, all those four levels of correction are now baked in one unique block and it's difficult to separate one from the other. And if you work in this way and you do a whole movie and then let's say there is a magic button that does an average of what you did, you find out that there is an average. The average is the main look of the movie. So if you can extrapolate that ahead of time, 
put it on top of everything, you have the majority of what you want to do already done. Um, let me just quick. <laughs> How to find the time to do different projects at the same time. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, sometimes I do three things in the day and my brain just... The problem is what you're looking at, it, it tires the eye. Like you're doing something very colorful and the next project doesn't have color because it's an horror. And oh my God, you, you take... The first 20 minutes, just to adjust your eyes, why I don't see saturation. I, I, know, I know that I cannot put saturation back because the director doesn't want it. So it's very difficult to jump. And sometimes even within the same movie, you go from one scene that has a very distinct look to the next one that's the opposite look. It takes a moment to adjust. And in HDR, it's even more complex because there's much more presence. So that human constraint, you know, uh, it does have some sort of a talk. How does your color grading process look like? Like, how long do you grade something? Like, what's the maximum duration, and when do you take a break? Uh, uh, I take a break when the client wanted me to take a break. But if I'm not supervised, pretty much every hour I do a moment of, you know, do a walk. I go to the bathroom even if I don't have to go to the bathroom, so I can walk a little bit. The problem is when you go outside to take a walk, then the sign blinds you. You go back in, and now you're blinded for a lot. Um, the, I try to take the most hard, the, the most artistic decision at the beginning of my day, mm-hmm. like uh, uh, set up the color for the scene or looking at new things at the beginning of the day. And the rest of the day is more technical matching because technical matching, you don't have to absolute judge a color. You just have to judge this versus that. And it's much easier to just flip the two images and find the differences and move on. Sure. So I tend, I tend to do, you know, all the artistic decision when I'm still fresh in the day. Um, although I had sections that went on for freaking 20 hours. So at the end of the 20th hour, don't ask me what I'm doing. I have no fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> you spoke uh, about, you know, when we had the previous conversation uh, about going wider and then you go scene by scene and then shot by shot. Yeah. Could you talk about that tunneling process a little bit? Uh, well, it was, as I was explaining earlier, uh, we implicitly do the same thing over and over. You have a big negative with a big fat signal, but the director of photography only exposed, let's say, just to throw a number, seven stop of the original 16 of the camera. So how we can take those 16 stop out elegantly in the final display, and if I can build a unique transformation, look, lot, curve, whatever you want it, that represent that core idea that will be on top of everything. Usually for me, is in the main timeline. I use Resolve. Um, it's in the main timeline. That is the ballpark. Is in the old days, the print stock you're using. I'm going to print on Fuji, 2473, whatever number it is, I have no idea. Then the photography start to fall in place because I'm assuming correctly the director of photography light the set in a certain way and put the actor in the set and doesn't really change light shot to shot. There is no reason. So a scene within the context of the photography is very coherent. I just need to find the hero shot and find under the master look that we have, which is the minimum amount of manipulation we can do to make it fit. And when I color, I don't color for the background. I don't make the white, white, the black, black, the gray, gray. I don't think that's necessary. I want to make the subject 
of the scene in the right exposure and the right white balance. If somebody's looking at the background, you already lost your audience, you know, a while ago. Like <laughs> think, think about, you know, Dunkirk, the plane chasing. You are looking at the other plane. You are looking where the plane is going. You're looking at the bullets. You don't look at the cloud. So you want to be sure that your eye goes where need to go, and that is what needs to be consistent. So for me, making the white white has no sense because is it a warm day? Is it a sad day? If I want to show sadness or you know a heavy green look, there is no white there. It's bloody green. But the skin of the subject and the exposure of the subject need to match. Once you have that for the hero shot, all the other shot next to it, minimal adjustment to bring it together. And I like to work a lot with printer lights. Printer lights are very elegant. In most of the logarithmic space, represent roughly exposure and uh, white balance of the camera. Mathematically, they're not identical, but very close. Mm -hmm. So you have just three very basic control to bring the exposure and the white balance where you need it, shot to shot to shot to shot. Then you have the consistency. If you have time, you do refinement. If you don't, you still have a project. Remember, for hundreds of years, those are the only control that the director of photography had in printing, and the movie looks amazing. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel much. Build a master look, build a look for the scene with the hero shot, match the hero shot with minimum control, and then refine if you have time. Brilliant. You also spoke about uh, colors and the different moods that they give. So, uh, you know, you, and, and I remember you also mentioned that you still do uh, your own self-study about uh, human psychology and like how uh, all this stuff affects, how color affects uh, the audience. How can somebody who's just starting out, is there any uh, place that you would like to direct them to go and, you know, uh, learn something about how, you know, like how, where can they go to learn about color and the different effects that they have okay, on the audience? Although, okay, give me one second. I see if I can find it quickly. Um, uh, okay, so one book that I actually like, it's called Vision and Art, the Biology of Seeing. So Vision and Art, the Biology of Seeing. Uh, it's uh, Margaret Livingstone. That it's basically a, a big piece of work that talk about how we see things. And anybody that want to learn this particular field, I will recommend it. Um, another book that I recommended is If It Is Purple, Somebody Has to Die. I think the title is something similar. Okay. And while the first one is more about how we see things, the second one is how different color through history of imaging make us feeling in a certain way when we look at the color. Like purple is usually associated with um, royalty because it was a very difficult color to tint dress. But it's also a sign to um, churchgoer and, you know, priests and certain cults. It usually is a sign to death. So if something starts to be purple, unless it's just, you know, a beautiful sunset, yeah. you start to feel that you're going in that direction. Uh, red is freaking dangerous. Something is bloody red. There is danger in the scene. So understanding at least the basic 
the, you know, the middle of the world ruled everybody learn because we saw images all the time. We are image people. And then you can break it, but at least learning the rule and learning how to put them. In a movie that I'm working on, there is a, 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 a remembering scene, a flashback scene of a, a boy that lost his mom. The whole visual world of the flashback was very warm. The problem is that in that scene, it did not work. Because a very warm scene, unless it's a, it's a liberation that the mom went to heaven, it just didn't work emotionally. So that scene, actually, I had to break the world that we created for the flashback mm -hmm. and make it way more cold and neutral. Gotcha. So it's, even if you want to stick to a rule, there is a point where if the rule is breaking the emotional content that you try to send, it's like, you know, if, if you have a, a big joyous fanfare during a... Um, uh, during a funeral, it's a, everybody's happy that this person died. I mean, you, you have to question in that way. Sure. So, uh, guys, we are kind of coming towards the end, uh, and I think you guys can actually ask the question. Yeah, there somebody so asked, uh, hold on, somebody asked for uh, assistance. No, I don't use assistance. Um, i never been so busy that I had to use them. Uh, and I actually, I really enjoy what I'm doing. So I like to follow every single deliverable, like we were saying earlier. Uh, I don't just do the theatrical. I do also the, the DVD. I do the Dolby Vision, the 3D passes. I really like to do it. If I get more busy, I may have an assistant. Um, you know, it's just not, not, not my style. I really like to follow and, and, and do it. I have one other person with me that usually does, does the online. So putting together the shot, putting the timeline. Uh, usually we split the, um, the exports. Maybe he does it, I do it, we do it together. Today, for example, for the old guard, I was doing all the QC fixes. You know, big list of things. And, uh, and the majority is, yeah, we know about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, conforming is, uh, in my case, Chris is the guy that uh, my second in command that does all the conforming. Uh, we had a few questions from uh, Facebook as well, and uh, <laughs> the 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 general question that so many people had is, what's it like working with Christopher Nolan? <laughs> uh, be prepared. Don't try to sell shit. Be prepared, and be respectful of him and the project he's doing. It's it's very simple. I mean, I remember um, the the I started to do. Uh, Star Wars uh, in um, Skywalker Ranch. I went to Skywalker Ranch for two weeks. The day before I go there, uh, I get the pep talk from uh, from my boss, and the whole pep talk, you know, yeah, we're gonna win. No, my whole pep talk was, please don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> but that actually, as a colorist, you have to have that in mind all the time. There are million of dollars at stake. Thousands of people work on the project. You are one of the last ones that touch the project. Don't fuck it up, really. Respect the photography, respect the cinematographer and the, the actual vision, and then you're fine. Um, somebody's asking about ACES. I use ACES if the client wants it. I mean, I, I'm not opposed to it. I'm not 
a gigantic fan of it. It works. Uh, but also because I know how to do all the color transformation myself. So if I know how to do my color transformation, I don't need ACES. Uh, I've seen it, you know, use it a little bit more than a few years back and probably will take a little bit, uh, you know, on. Mm -hmm. um, like I say, it's, no, it's not a problem. <laughs> I can use it or not. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> what about working with uh, different genres? That's another question that people had uh grading according to the genre how does that work out so for example i don't particularly enjoy uh horror movie just because i don't like them but regardless <laughs> quite a few horror movies as well exactly you still have to be a professional so if i have to grade a horror movie what i usually do i go in netflix or in amazon and i start to see other movie that has the same kind of a feeling to kind of a get an idea of the palettes. Mm -hmm. um, or I usually ask the director, do you have something in mind? And sometimes they come with photography. Sometimes they send me links. Uh, they say, oh, I really like that movie over there just as an inspiration. Um, and then the idea is when, when we lock down a couple of shots, you know, like I said, the hero shots, then it's very technical. I may not like the color, it doesn't bloody matter. I will match the scene for you as best as I possibly can. Um, it, it's detaching myself from what I like and become the profession, become the extension of your vision. Uh, somebody's asking, I usually use Resolve. I mean, I did the training on Baselight, but I never had actually a chance to work on it. Never happened. Uh, so in the last few... Oh, Jenny... Hi, <laughs> I know her. Um, uh, I worked for a long time on the Quantel, uh, but now I work in Resolve for the last nine years, 10 years, something like that. And you know, is it the best color corrector? It doesn't matter. It's like asking a samurai, is the best sword? No, it's how you use it that counts. Exactly. Everybody can have a pen and a piece of paper, but at the end of the day is what you write down with the pen of paper. It doesn't matter if the pen is made with gold or whatever. It's what you write, it's the idea. Uh, I don't do usually relighting for face replacement. Um, I take a minimalist approach. I, I do basic exposure, white balance and contrast to bring the subject in the best light possible and then I trust the director of photography. We have a comparative question about uh, how far off is yeah, from you? I Something. don't. I don't know just because, um, you know, I don't use Premiere, but I think Premiere is more like uh, an editing software. It really doesn't matter. You may have just basic tools. You can still do a compelling image in a, in a compelling um, product. It's how you use the tool. Obviously, if you're trying to take down a wall and you have a small hammer versus a jackhammer, a jackhammer will be faster. You have a, a comment in Italian from... Uh, yeah, somebody's saying thank you for, uh, for the time. Absolutely. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do it anytime, guys. She's from um, the team. And uh, why must it be you still use amorphous lenses? It's a choice. It's simply for, for style. Um, I see actually a lot of research in pre-production for lenses to give a certain flavor. Um, for another movie that I end up not to do because a bunch of political bullshit, 
uh, but I still did the pre-production. They were looking for something that give a very 1920-1930 look. So they went up to get really, really old lenses. Not only that, they went to Panavision and they took away the coating of the lenses. So they were getting those amazing flare and reflections. I'm pretty sure the VFX people will hate them, but it give a lot of character. It's just, you know, it's, it's about characters. Do you prefer, um, I don't know, oil painting or uh, aquarello or fresco? It's just, you prefer one versus the other. Now, why we don't use spherical lenses and make an amorphic product? Because you don't get the bouquet at the end. At the end, the bouquet, the, you know, the horizontal, the vertical bouquet with the horizontal flaring, you only really get with the lens. It's really difficult to do it in post. It's just a choice, really. Sure. Uh, you're coming to a close. And uh, if anyone has any questions, uh, you could put them here. Or, you know, uh, if you join the conversation later on, we will have this uploaded on IGTV. And since we are running out of time and I see so many people have questions as well, we probably will have a, a session too, time demanding when it comes to Walter. Uh, so one question, you have, do we need to color grade shot? Yeah. Shot so um, Radishan, uh, forgive me if I don't pronounce correctly your name, try to group the shots of a scene in an actual block and try to make a color for the whole block. When it start to work for the old block, you will see that the majority of the shots fall in place. And then you just try to see which shot doesn't match and put it together. If you use uh, in Resolve a group strategy, I always do grouping. I always put the scene in a group so I know that when I color from beginning to end, it belongs to one particular zone. Um, if you actually put a correction on the group, you can get right there for the majority of your shots. And it's much easier to put the other one together. Great. Cool. So uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today, folks. Uh, Walter, thank you so much. Yeah. We will hopefully have uh, another session sometime in the near future. This session will be uploaded to IGTV. And uh, <laughs> there we go. He's collaborating himself. Just going. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, guys. Uh, great questions. Walter, thank you so much. Yeah. Again. And, you know, we can do it again anytime. I'll, I'll, I can talk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> for sure oh, we'll, we'll link something up again uh, also uh, we're going to be continuing this junkyard theory possibly every single week and uh, next the next guest we're going to have is somebody who has been to a galaxy far far away so until until next time I will see you guys thank you so okay. much again guys. thank you thank for you. having me all good